But let's give our attention now to the reading and to the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. Thank you for preserving your word for us, even to this day that we might have it. And we've heard it read in a common tongue. We understand, but God, we only understand in part. And so we ask now that you would give us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Oh God, make us more like Jesus I pray for your people. I ask, oh God, that you would work in their hearts even now through the preaching of the word. That you would encourage and strengthen them, build them up, lead them in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And Father, help me, your servant. Lord, protect me from error. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the very heart of liberty 
is self-governance. A people once enslaved to the tyranny of another, a people subject to unjust rule and, and unjust treatment at the hands of an oppressor, a people freed from such circumstances, have within them a natural desire to throw off the laws of the old and then generates a set of laws to govern that which is new. Instinctively, and I would say this is a naturally God-given instinct, instinctively, mankind knows that law is good. But where does law come from? Where do these freedmen, those who have been set free, where do they find their new law? Is it a matter of crowdsourcing? Putting heads together to come up with the best set of rules that everyone can agree to? Is it uh, looking within oneself to discover a path forward that quote-unquote works for everybody? Can one just pull the masses and take the top vote-getter? Can popularity win the day? In 2016, the nation of England learned just how futile crowdsourcing can be. They were seeking to name a new Arctic research ship, a boat, so they turned to the internet for suggestions. Early in the polling, a name emerged as the front runner, and eventually it actually won by a very large margin. Some of you know the winning name, Bodie McBoatface. I'm not kidding. That's right. Bodie McBoatface. I, I can even say it now with a straight face. My kids are laughing. The crowdsourced winning name of this new dignified research vessel was to be Bodie McBoatface, thanks to the masses. Now, in case you're wondering, not surprisingly, that name was rejected by the authorities making the decisions. It was actually given the name RRS Sir David Attenborough. Sounds better than Bodie McBoatface. I was told, however, that one of its accompanying submarines was named Bodie McBoatface, just to keep people happy. Now, while not all crowdsourcing yields such obscure and comical and untenable results, this example does underscore a very important principle related to the governance of a free people, and that is this. Any law... Any law meant to instruct us on how to relate to the world and to live with one another must be based on, in fact, it might be better to say it must be derived from a source outside of us, something ultimate, something, or maybe I should say someone, with the ultimate authority to judge us and hold us accountable to that law, someone above and beyond what we can do ourselves. So while self-governance is indeed a hallmark of liberty, governing ourselves must have at its foundation an ultimate source for such law. This is something that the founding fathers of the United States understood, and it is something that even the very infant nation of Israel is learning to understand in our text today. Before us in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21, is the first recording of God's moral law for his people. What makes this passage unique 
is that in this passage, God himself, the, the creator of all that is seen and unseen, the ultimate authority for all creation, is speaking. And he's speaking in the hearing of all the people. I told myself I wouldn't do this again. I forgot to put my phone on, do not disturb. And now Siri is answering me. Okay. I love moments like that. The creator and sustainer of the universe is speaking directly to his people. You'll remember from chapter 19 last week that Moses is God's chosen mediator. You remember that it said, remember those three ascents and descents from the mountain? Right? The people are not to go up there. They're not even to touch the mountain. Instead, Moses goes up. Later, uh, Aaron will go with him. They hear from the Lord and then deliver the law to the people. But here at the beginning, God is actually speaking in the hearing of all people. Something verified there in verses 18 through 21, which we read. When the people see and the people hear, so they heard God, how did they respond? They're terrified. They stand far off. They stand far away. And they beg Moses to speak to them. And from here on out, instead of what we see, if you look there again in verse 1, and God spoke all these words, we find a different formula that you can see in verse 22. Look at verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses. So from this point out, now comes the intercessory back and forth. But here, God speaks so that all his people will hear him. God is giving his law what we call commonly the moral law, the Ten Commandments, God is speaking them to his people. So to help guide us through this passage this morning, which I'll have to admit, at times this week, just felt like a fool's errand. What fool tries to preach one message on the Ten Commandments, right? Shouldn't there be 12 or 20 or 30? But remember, we're going through the entire book, and so Lord willing, in the years to come, we'll come back and do a longer series on the commandments. Even so, this is what I'm going to try to do today. I'm going to try to guide us with three points. You won't be surprised by that. Three points. So let's look at these. You can write them down up front. First is we're going to look at the structure of the Ten Commandments. The structure of the Ten Commandments. Second, we're going to look at what the Ten Commandments reveal to us about God. What the Ten Commandments reveal to us about God. And lastly, we're going to talk about what the Ten Commandments reveal to us about ourselves. What do the Ten Commandments reveal to us about ourselves? So we'll begin first with the structure of the Ten Commandments. Now, any study of the Ten Commandments must begin with this admission. Many, if not most people, don't know the Ten Commandments. Many, if not most people, are simply ignorant to the Ten Commandments. This is not only true outside of the church, but within the church as well. How many of you know them? If I were to start randomly calling on men and women, boys and girls, and ask you to stand up and list the Ten Commandments in order, how many of you would do that? I may never see you again if I do that. And I'm not going to do that. And this is not meant to shame you. It's just an admission. It's an admission up front. Many, if not most, don't know them. To illustrate this, uh, pastor and author Kevin DeYoung recently cited a study that was conducted. 
In it, in this study, in this poll, 80% of respondents in the U.S. knew that two all-beef patties were among the ingredients in a Big Mac from McDonald's. You're getting the jingle in your head, aren't you? However, only 60% could identify thou shalt not kill as one of the Ten Commandments. Furthermore, while 25%, this is amazing to me, and I think I can do it too, 25% could actually name all seven ingredients in a Big Mac, two all beef patties, okay, I'm not going to say it. Only 14% could list all the Ten Commandments, not even worry about them in order, could actually list them and what they were. Only 14%. More of the story, Austin, perhaps we need more Ten Commandment jingles. Okay, got a song for that. Even if many people don't know all Ten Commandments, my experience tells me that even those who do know them, who have studied them, they often neglect verse 2. They often neglect verse 2. They've got the rules down. We like rules. They've got the rules down, but they've missed the foundation for those rules. So therefore, any discussion of the structure of these commandments must begin with verse 2. It's called the preamble. Look at it again with me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, the Ten Commandments actually begin with a recitation of historical fact. They're based on something that actually happened in history. The Lord, the covenant God of the people, who appeared to Moses and worked in and through him, has delivered his people out of the land of Egypt. He's delivered them out of the house of slavery, it says. Because of God and what God has done, his people are free. They are free. But God did not deliver them to a freedom apart from him. God didn't deliver them to some form of self-governing autonomy. Rather, he delivered them to a freedom in him. Not a freedom apart from him, but a freedom in him. God's bringing them on a journey. That's why this series is titled Journey to Freedom. He's bringing them on a, free, on a journey. He's still bringing us on that journey to freedom He's bringing them on this journey into safe pastures. And as he brings them to safe pastures, for this people, it's the promised land. For us, it's the true promised land in heaven. God is showing them the fences, the fences, the boundaries that he's putting up to help them live in that freedom. When you're in a car and you're going around a dangerous curve, perhaps if you've done this in the heights of the mountains, and you go around that curve and you see those guardrails, do you curse the guardrails? When you see them, you go, why are those there? You think I'm an idiot and don't know how to drive on this curb? We don't curse the guardrails. We don't look at them and say, you're robbing me of my freedom. Instead, what do you do? Well, if you've ever needed them, or known someone who needed them, or even thought you needed them, what did you do? You say, I'm glad those are there. I'm glad they're there. If I lose control, those will keep me from plummeting to my destruction. Whoever put them there cares. 
They care about my welfare. They care about my security. In much the same way, God is establishing. He's pointing out his guardrails. He's showing the people how they are to live in response to their freedom. He's showing them where they can run free and themselves be safe from plummeting over the edge to their own destruction. God has set his people free. And now he's teaching them how to live in response to that freedom. What follows this preamble then are the actual Ten Commandments themselves. Now, depending from what tradition you're from or know about, you know that there's some debate to how these are organized. Um, there, is, there is debate. The way they're listed and enumerated, as I read them earlier in the ESV, the English Standard Version, is what we would call the classic Protestant order. So right away, as I read them, and as I know you're all familiar with them and have them even memorized, right? Right away, you should notice that the first four commands, often called the first table, speak to our relationship to God. We should notice that right away. They're vertical in nature. So in summary, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before the true God. Second, you should not make and worship idols. I'm summarizing for you. Third, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And fourth, yes, it's still there. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So in recognizing their vertical nature, these four are rightly summarized even by Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You can turn there if you'd like, but... Um, Jesus says that the first and the great commandment, one of the two on which all the law and the prophets depend, is this, and he summarizes these four, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's repeating from Deuteronomy, but he's saying that's how to summarize that first table. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We might add strength. The other six commandments are often called the second table, and these speak to our relationships with others, with one another. They're horizontal in nature. So in summary, kids, listen, your parents aren't crazy when they say this. There is a commandment, honor your father and mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not lie or bear false witness. And 10, you shall not covet. Again, returning to Matthew 22, Jesus brings these six together, right? As the second law, he says, on which all the law and the prophets depend. In verse 39 of Matthew 22, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there you have it. That's the simplified structure of the Ten Commandments. You have the preamble, where God identifies himself as the covenant Lord and the one who's delivered his people, the one who has the power to give them freedom, and the one who is establishing his covenant with them. And then following that preamble comes the Ten Commandments, organized as four, the first four speaking to our relationship with God, and six speaking to our relationship with one another. That's the basic structure of the Ten Commandments. Now, I want us to move on and focus on what the Ten Commandments reveal to us about God. 
We've touched on this already. We touched on it throughout the book of Exodus. And last week, even in chapter 19, we touched on the fact that God is the covenant God of his people. He's revealed himself to Moses and to his people as Yahweh. That's his covenant name. Remember in your Bible, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is where the the covenant name of God is being used. He's referred to himself that way. He's manifest, he's revealed himself that way. Uh, And so when we hear that, and as we talked about last week, that covenant is the basis of our relationship with God, it tells us that God is a relational God. And you're like, duh. But we should not forget that. God is a personal and relational God who enters into, establishes a relationship with his people. God doesn't stand far off and allow us or ask us to grope around in the darkness and look for him. No, he initiates and he establishes relationships with his people. He does so by covenant. And in his covenant, he makes promises to them. And because he's the creator and king of all creation, he has the right to give his people commands. God gives them laws to govern that relationship. So I want you to note this well, and I'm going to repeat it as Pastor Mark Strom uh, has said it so well in his commentary. The Lord did not give the law to establish his relationship with his people. He gave it because he already had a relationship with his people. And he wanted them now to learn how to express this relationship faithfully. I'll repeat that. The Lord did not give the law to establish his relationship with his people. He gave it because he already had a relationship with his people. And he wanted them now to learn how to express, how to live in that relationship faithfully. The Ten Commandments reveal for us God's commitment to this covenant relationship. Another thing these commandments reveal about God is that he is holy. God is altogether holy, righteous, and just. I hope this doesn't surprise you to hear this, but God absolutely does care how we love him and how we worship him. He does care. He regulates it. It is not up to us to decide how we're going to be faithful to him with our lives. To love and serve God in any way that we please is illustrated very well by the words of a Puritan I read recently. They were spoken in 1646. Listen to this. To love and serve God any way that we please is like this. It's like having the sun follow the clock. It's like having the sun answer to the clock. Or maybe one you're used to hearing, having the tail wagging the dog. You see, in God's holiness, God establishes the terms of the covenant relationship. In love, in grace, in mercy, he establishes the terms. It's not crowdsourced. It comes straight from him. Now, Jesus repeated it. 
In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Our love for God is reflected by our obedience to his commands. And lastly, I would say, particularly living on this side of the cross, that these commandments reveal to us that God is abundantly gracious. These commandments actually teach us that God is gracious. I want you to think about it for a moment. God is not only gracious in giving us these commandments, the fact that he's entering into a relationship with us is gracious, but that's not the only way that we see his graciousness. He's even more gracious because of what he knows to be true about us. They set the stage. They continue the story. We can't keep them. So even the Ten Commandments are pointing to the one who will. It's pointing to the truth that he's going to send his son Jesus to fulfill this law completely and perfectly. For I'm going to ask you this. What man or woman, what little boy or little girl can ever keep these commandments on their own? Who? Who can no one. No one can keep these laws perfectly. But we're still bound. We're bound to keep them. So that inability, and I hope you're thinking about that inability even now, the inability to keep them drives us to see something very important about the nature of the law. It exposes our deep need for a Savior who can do it. I'm going to repeat myself again in a moment because it's this important, but I'm going to say it now. God did that. He did that. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born of the flesh, born under the law, and in the perfection of his humanity and divinity, he lived and he kept this law perfectly and even took upon himself the curse for breaking the law, and he did that for us so that we could join with the Apostle Paul, who over in Romans 7, 24 and 25, when discussing the nature of the law in his own life and how he just can't live the way he knows that God has called him to do, he cries out and says, wretched man that I am. Terrible person that I have. you been there before? I know what I ought to do, but I can't do it. I'm continuing in sin. This is a struggle. Paul's talking about covetousness in his example. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't stop there. Do you know what he says next? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. So we see then that the Ten Commandments reveal to us God's commitment to his covenant relationship with us. They reveal to us God's absolute holiness. And they also show us a glimpse of his abundant graciousness to us by taking the demands upon himself in Christ to fulfill and provide us with the righteousness that these commandments require. Certainly there's more. Point two could go on till about five o'clock this afternoon. Some of you are saying afternoon, that's evening. But for time's sake, I'm gonna leave it there because I wanna go to our third and final point this morning. What the 10 commandments reveal about us. What the 10 commandments reveal about us. We've covered some of this already this morning, so bear with me. Clearly, as I've said, the Ten Commandments reveal to us 
the depth of our sin and our total inability to keep them on our own. If you're not familiar with this concept, this thought, you can spend some time this week reading through the Sermon on the Mount as it's given in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Jesus makes these points very clear. In fact, he, he takes the commandments and he expands them to show how they were not meant to just be a, a simple rule for us to outwardly follow, but rather they were a matter of the heart, a matter of attitude and desire. He, he had illustrated this in his ministry even. You know, I've kept all the commandments, so we'll go and sell everything and give to the poor and then come and follow me. He reveals the covetousness, right, that was building up in that young man's heart, the rich young ruler. So what he does in the Sermon on the Mount through several of the commandments is he shows how it's really about attitude and desire, what the law had always been about, even as it's said in Deuteronomy 5 and 6, it's a matter of the heart. But Matthew 5.22, Jesus says, you know, I heard you, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And then he goes on to say, everyone in 5.22, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister is liable to judgment. He's saying, if you're angry, you're guilty already. So you can say, I've never actually murdered someone. I don't know why we always do that when we talk about murdering. I've never actually murdered someone. But if you've been angry in your heart against someone, you're liable to judgment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. He goes on to say, but if you look at a woman or a man, if you're a woman, and you look at him lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you're not familiar with that, I challenge you to read that this week with that lens. Because Jesus said very clearly, I did not come to abolish the law. I didn't come to take it and set it aside and then get a whole new set of standards. He came to fulfill it, both in keeping it, but also in teaching it to us, that we might understand all of its implications. So in this way, the Ten Commandments show us that because of our sin, because of the pervasive nature of our sin, we need a Savior. Theologians will often call this the second, or depending if you're in another tradition, the third use of the law. It shows us our need for a Savior. We need someone, and we know who that someone is, it's Jesus. We need Jesus to stand in our place. Praise God that in his grace, he's done that for us. But make no mistake, just as I have already said that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, he did not come to abolish it. So we're still obligated to obey the Ten Commandments. So the other important thing that the Ten Commandments reveal about us is that not only that we need a Savior, but they reveal that we really do belong to the Lord, that we really are his people. That we are, remember, back in chapter 19, verse 6, what is God's goal here? What is he doing He's establishing a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. By the way, that's, that's not an old promise. That's still new. Peter brings that up in 1 Peter, right? We're still, all of you, brothers and sisters, we're a, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. If we're to be that, then we have to be a people who are set apart. We must be prepared to stand alone. We have to be prepared to uh, look different, to act different. We have to be willing to take up a set of commandments that the world scoffs at. But we know, Christians know, that we cannot be autonomous. 
we know that we must be ultimately governed by an absolute authority. If we're to be his holy nation, his holy priesthood, then we must live as he's called us to live. So that shows us what is often called the third use of the law, or if you flipped on the second use, they teach us how to live for Jesus. So they show us our sin and our need for a savior, and the law teaches us how to live for Jesus. You can come talk to me afterwards if you want to know the first use. But I have to say this loud and clear. So if you're drifting off, come back. Come back. The law is not a means of salvation. The law is not a means of salvation. I'm not saying that someone is saved by keeping these commandments. Because if that were the way to salvation, guess what? We're all doomed. All of us are doomed. That's legalism. Legalism has no compatibility with the gospel of grace. If you think that it is your obedience to God's law that saves you or somehow keeps you in God's love and grace, then you're just like Icarus. Remember Icarus? You've made your wings of wax and you're floating along freely. The closer you get to the absolute light and heat of God's holiness, your wings will melt and you will fall to your own destruction. Another Puritan puts it this way, if you think you can be saved by your works, then you might as well try to lasso the moon with a rope made of sand. You can't do it. You can't. You can't. On the other hand, we have to guard our hearts against completely disregarding the law as well. Happens way too much. It's called antinomianism. Big word, against the law. It's called antinomianism. To be sure, we've been saved by grace and we've been saved through faith. That's how it always has been throughout all of redemptive history. Read Romans 4. Abraham is justified by faith. It's by grace and through faith. But I want to caution you, and I'm really cautioning myself as I've done all week. I want to caution us not to disregard the law altogether. Grace is not a license to sin. The grace found in Jesus Christ is not a license to sin. Though you can never be saved by your works, you can never be saved by your adherence to God's law, you can indeed find true freedom. And you can find earthly security when you live according to God's law. Here I'm speaking of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. I often think of the promise attached to the Fifth Commandment. We read it earlier. It's, it's a promise that's actually true for all of them, as much as it is that one. If you look there in chapter 20, verse 12, you'll see it. Honor your father and mother. Why? <laughs> that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Parents, remember that one. I actually like it gets expanded over in Deuteronomy 5 as the next generation hears the law again. It gets expanded a little bit when it's repeated. And it's that your days may be long. And that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So a question that we've heard asked by others and we've learned to ask our kids, I'll ask you, not that you're children, but I want to ask you. Christians, do you want to live long? Do you want it to go well with you? Right, kids, you hear that. (laughs) They're sheepishly smiling at me. Do you want to live long? Do you want it to go well? Do you want to enjoy the freedom that God has given you? Do you want to truly enjoy that freedom? The freedom that he's bought for you in Jesus Christ. 
Do you want to glorify God and enjoy him forever in the here and now of the present? Do you want to live in the fullness of his love for you? Then if it's got you chained, throw off the shackles of legalism. If it's enticing to you, run away from the counterfeit freedom of antinomianism. I want to call you to rest in the peace and joy that's found in being a holy nation and a royal priesthood of all those who've been reconciled to God by grace and through faith. To rest and run in his freedom. And don't hate the guardrails. Don't despise them. Run where they're set up. The Apostle John, inspired by God, of course, addressed this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. If you want to turn there, I'll close by reading that. 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. How can I know that God loves me? Many answers to that. He created you. He made you in his image. If you're in him, he saved you. He's helping you. He sent you his son to live and die and rise again for you. He sent his spirit into your hearts. He's given you faith. He's given you blessings, spiritual and material. He's done all this. But listen to this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God. He's given them to us, and we keep them. We keep his commandments. And listen, his commandments are not a burden. His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I think John has in his mind that living long and well, overcoming the world. And he finishes, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen and amen.